This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... It is our strong hope that the parties will make a quick formation of a civilian-led government that is able to lead Sudan out of its current political economic crises. That's Peter Lord, the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Horn of Africa, on envoys and representatives of the European Union meeting with Sudanese officials. Details coming up. Also, the death toll from a devastating earthquake has risen to nearly 20,000 in Turkey and Syria. Malawi has rejected U.S. concerns that it's waging a campaign of intimidation against the country's anti-corruption chief. And February in the United States is Black History Month. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. The first UN aid convoy has entered the rebel-held Syria as the death toll from a massive earthquake that also battered Turkey reaches to nearly 20,000. Getting through areas controlled by the government or rebels has made it harder for humanitarian workers to reach survivors. The World Food Program's Country Director for Syria, Ken Crossley, tells VOA's Carol Van Dam the UN agency has reached nearly 64,000 people in urgent need of food. We definitely see a lot of uh, devastation. Buildings collapsed, houses collapsed, people still, of course, the first responders on scene searching through the rubble, um, hospitals uh, getting a lot of attention. Um, so it truly is a difficult, difficult scene it had been cold and snowy, uh, people sleeping on the streets, people in shelters, um, people sleeping in cars, unable to go back into their homes, which had been damaged or, or destroyed. We heard from a lot of uh, rescue workers um, and reporters yesterday that are on the scene there that it's so cold that they were worried they're not going to be able to pull any more people alive out of the rubble. Is is that the case? Yeah, that, that has been the case. Definitely for, for those who are doing the, the first-line response, uh, the, the working conditions are horrible. And yes, it, it, it really is discouraging thinking about people who might not yet have been found and who might still be under the rubble. Um, the other part of the story is the response of the community has been tremendous. Neighbors, volunteers, community organizations, shelters springing up, uh, and so people who are able to get some assistance in these shelters from their neighbors, from community organizations, and of course, from our own international assistance as well. Tell me what WFP is doing there right now. Right. So we are, of course, primarily interested just in making sure that people who are just newly displaced or suffering from the disaster have food to eat. Uh, we're working with local partners on the ground within hours of the earthquake. The partners were using some of our assistance to provide hot meals to people in shelters. We've been providing uh, meals ready to eat, um, tin food, things that don't require cooking. Um, and now we've, uh, within a few days, we've now reached nearly 45,000 people with this assistance working through the local community partners here on the ground, just ensuring that people have food in their stomachs and, and something to sustain them uh, for the next week or two. The number, unfortunately, is growing in terms of the number of people we need, and therefore 
we're continuing rapidly to be dispatching supplies and goods and food through our partners to all of these growing caseloads that we're, we're getting to in, in increasingly difficult areas to reach. And when you speak about getting to those areas, is it increasingly difficult as well? Because, you know, this is a war-ravaged area where the quake hit to make matters, you know, even more miserable for people there. Is it hard because rebels control some areas and the government controls other areas? That is the case, although we should recognize WFP feeds already five and a half million people per month across all of Syria. We're in areas we, we, we respond to people's need wherever they are, whoever they are, without respect to who the authorities are in that place. We've got extensive networks and relationships with community organizations. So we were able to leverage those extensive networks. We were able to leverage some of the food we already had in hand for our programs in order to provide rapid relief. relief. However, as soon as we try and replenish the stocks, which are drawing down, then yes, it becomes quite difficult to get in um, we have to negotiate access to areas which are contested. We have to negotiate with multiple governmental and non-state partners. We have to neg- navigate checkpoints, sometimes mined roads, etc. And so it definitely is impeding the access for replenishing of the stocks. That's Ken Crossley, uh, World Food Program Country Director in Syria. He's speaking with VOA's Carol Van Dam. Mali's military government says army officers, including the chief of staff and head of the National Guard, have been relieved of their duties. The French news agency AFP says a government statement reports that the others include heads of the military, the police, uh, military engineers, and the armed forces health service. No reason was given for the dismissals. The announcement comes as Islamic rebels and regional groups continue to fight the military government. Special envoy from Britain, the EU, France, Germany, Norway and the US have vowed to support Sudan's transition to a civilian-led government. In a visit this week to Khartoum, the Western envoy said they would resume funding Sudan only after a civilian-led government was in place. The envoys arrived as Russia's foreign minister was visiting the country. Michael Atit reports for VOA from Khartoum, Sudan. Six envoys and representatives of the European Union arrived in Khartoum Wednesday and met with Sudanese political leaders to show support for the country's ongoing political transition. The envoys vowed to resume financial support to Sudan once a civilian-led transitional government is formed. The envoys made the pledge late Wednesday after meeting with the head of Sudan's ruling sovereign council, General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan. Speaking after the meeting, Peter Lord the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Eastern Africa, Sudan and South Sudan, said the envoys are in Khartoum to acquaint themselves with the ongoing political process. He says they believe that the December 5th political framework agreement is the basis to form the next civilian-led government in Sudan and the best basis to establish a constitutional arrangement for a transitional period that results in elections. It is our strong hope that the parties will make a quick formation of a civilian-led government that is able to lead Sudan out of its current political economic crises. On December 5th, Sudanese civilian and military leaders signed a power-sharing deal that raised hopes of ending clashes between security forces and protesters that have persisted since last year's military coup. 
Ambassador Lord says it is their hope that the framework agreement will mark the first step toward forming a civilian-led government which will prepare the nation for elections. In early January, various Sudanese political forces that were signatories to the framework agreement launched discussions on army and security reforms, transitional justice, and dismantling elements of former President Omar al-Bashir's government. Khalid Omar Yusuf, the official spokesperson for the ongoing political process, welcomed the visit of the six Western envoys and says it is a good opportunity for them to know the challenges facing the process in Sudan. He says the envoys express their understanding about challenges facing the political process in Sudan and their readiness to fully support all the actors to reach an urgent political solution in a short time. The envoy's visit coincided with an official visit by Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov to Khartoum Wednesday as part of his African tour to seek economic ties. Sudanese political analyst Haj Hamad says Russia is trying to send a signal to the Western countries that it also has a strong ties with Sudan and it has to protect its interests. They are European main suppliers of the army with weapons. Uh, they are already supporting HMT uh, by training and other things. Uh, they have their own companies that are mining gold. So they have to protect this economic interest by standing firm. And you know, the Russians are becoming more aggressive now in their foreign policy as they are now becoming more militarily aggressive in Ukraine. The state-owned Sudan News Agency, or SUNA, reports that Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov met Thursday morning with General Al-Burhan and his deputy Muhammad Hamdan Dagalo. SUNA reports the meeting focused on Sudanese-Russian relations and ways to enhance them in all fields, as well as the political crisis in Sudan in light of the framework agreement that was signed in December. Michael Atid, for VOA News, Khartoum, Sudan. Activists and opposition in Uganda have cried foul at the government's decision to close the United Nations Human Rights Office in the country. A letter from Uganda's foreign ministry leaked this week said the UN office was no longer needed because the government is capable of upholding human rights. Rights activists in the country strongly disagree. Halima Tumani reports from Kampala, Uganda. The mandate of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights effectively ends today, February 9th, three years after it was last renewed. Human rights activists say the government of Uganda has been playing hide and seek whenever renewal of the mandate came up. The government, in a letter dated February 3rd, said that due to the prevailing peace throughout the country, coupled with strong national human rights institutions, and a vibrant civil society with a capacity to monitor, promote, and protect human rights in Uganda, it will not renew the mandate of the office. Livingstone Sewanyana, director of a local NGO, the Foundation for Human Rights Initiative, tells VOA that the closure is surprising, but he sees it as part of a larger trend. However, for the last couple of years, we are aware that Uganda's civil society has been weakening. The civic space has been uh, has been shrinking, 
And increasingly, we are also aware that the Uganda Human Rights Commission's capacity has also grown less and less. Now it is the time to rebuild that. In February 2021, after Uganda's general elections, Bobby Wine, the leader of the opposition National Unity Party platform, delivered a petition to the UN Human Rights Office in Kampala. The petition was to protest human rights abuses and abductions of his supporters in the run-up to and after that year's presidential election won by longtime president Yoram Seveni. Journalists covering the petition were beaten up in front of the office. Speaking to VOA, Wine says the abductions continue. He says the party does not have any trust in the National Human Rights Commission office to deliver justice to victims and their families. But I'm not shocked. I'm not surprised, and uh, I don't think any Ugandan should be surprised. That is General Museveni's modus operandi. Whenever he's uh, called to account in regards to human rights violations, he will react in a rather ominous way. Reacting to the rights office closure, the U.S. ambassador to Uganda, Natalie Brown, said that a society does not advance if it does not respect the human rights of its citizens. Natalia called for all Ugandans to speak up when rights are violated and seek help from civil society. There are many, many ways to protect um, those rights. It, they can be enshrined in law, but we have to uphold the law and we have to um, hold security forces and elected officials and those in executive positions. They have to be accountable when individuals' rights are violated. The Kampala Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights was established in 2006 to focus on the human rights situation in conflict-affected areas in North and eastern Uganda, but was later expanded to the rest of the country. The Ugandan government says after the Kampala office is closed, it will continue its cooperation with the UN human rights officials through their headquarters or their permanent mission in Geneva. Halima Othmani for VA News, Kampala, Uganda. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. Malawi's government has rejected U.S. concerns that it is waging a campaign of intimidation against the country's anti-corruption chief. Yesterday, the U.S. Embassy in Lilongwe condemned what it called harassment of Malawi's anti-corruption bureau director, Martha Chizuma. The statement came after the government suspended Chizuma for her complaints about officials blocking her investigations. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre, Malawi. In a statement, the U.S. Embassy said it is deeply concerned with how the Malawi government is working to intimidate the Director General of the country's anti-corruption bureau, Martha Jizuma. Last week, Secretary to the Office of President and the Cabinet, Colin Zamba, suspended Jizuma, citing an audio recording where she accused some top government officials of hindering her fight against corruption. A court ordered the government to lift the suspension, but the government has asked the court to vacate the order. In a recorded statement, 
the U.S. ambassador in Malawi, David Young, said the government's move culminates two months of harassment against Chizuma, and he said the embassy was deeply concerned with the government's action. As a democratic partner, the embassy of the United States of America looks to the government of Malawi to actively pursue the fight against corruption and not to wage a campaign of intimidation against anti-corruption champions. We have actively engaged senior government officials to seek renewed commitment to the fight against corruption, but those efforts have not yielded results. Ambassador Yang cited the midnight arrest of Jizuma in December and the criminal charges the government filed against her as other examples of government intimidation. Our shared commitment to Malawi's development depends on trust that Malawi will use public resources, including development funds, transparently, fairly, and with accountability. These recent actions undermine the credibility of the government of Malawi's stated commitment to the fight against corruption. The United States is Malawi's biggest financial supporter, providing more than 350 million U.S. dollars annually in bilateral assistance. According to the Budget and Finance Committee in Malawi's parliament, studies have found that 20% of Malawi's national budget is lost through corruption. Moses Kunkuyu is the Malawi government spokesperson. He said in a statement that the Malawi government will follow diplomatic channels to address the concerns the U.S. Embassy has raised. Kunkuyu, who is also the government's Minister of Information, told State Radio that it is wrong to accuse the government of failing to fight corruption. He said President Lazarus Chakwera has supported Chizuma since the time opposition lawmakers rejected her appointment as head of the anti-corruption bureau. There came this issue of the audio. The president stood with her and pardoned her. Then the commissioners inquiry recommended that, that some action should be taken against her. The president stood with her. Then there has been issues of funding, crippling operations of the SCB. The president ensured that his government provides funding towards the SCB. The High Court of Malawi has dismissed the government's request to lift an injunction against Chizuma's suspension, saying it lacked merit. The Malawi's government says it will appeal against Wednesday's ruling, which has effectively allowed Chizuma to return to work. Lamik Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. February in the United States is Black History Month. It recognizes the achievements of African Americans. This year's theme is Black Resistance. For more insight into Black History Month, Africa 54 spoke with Melvin Foote, President and Chief Executive Officer, Constituency for Africa. Melvin, welcome. First of all, explain to us about this theme, black resistance. What does that mean? Well, you know, Carter G. Woodson came up with the ideal, and blacks coming out of slavery were treated in the most inhumane fashion in this country. And so a lot of this came with stereotypes, and um, so this was an attempt to correct it, an attempt to also get Americans to appreciate the culture and the value of people of African descent. And so it started out of Africa Week, uh, it's been expanded to Africa Month. Some of us advocate it should be Africa Year, uh, 24 hours a day, 
every day of the of the year. So, what are the issues at hand that uh, black, uh, you know, people of, of black uh, color are concerned about and need to be resisting? Because you know that's the theme for this 2023. Yeah. Well, a lot of this has to do with uh, economics, uh, jobs. It has to do with uh, opportunities in the country. If you're seen as inferior and you know, less of a a human than, than white Americans, then they're going to treat you that way. They're going to pay you that way. They're going to, uh, you know, the, 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 the core issue of this country is uh, fairness. And so Black History Month is just one piece of the effort to uh, restore or to, to uh, bring African Americans to an equal basis of white Americans Jewish Americans, Irish Americans, other Americans. So African Americans must be treated similarly. So Black History Month is just a tool to try to get Americans to know about us, to learn about us, to understand who we really are and what our real contributions to this country are. Talking of contributions, what would you say are you know, professions where uh, black uh, people in the United States have been able to excel and dominate? Well, certainly in sports, you know, uh, we talk about football, we talk about baseball. Sure, look at the, the numbers, you know, you'll find that 70%, 80% of the players are black because of physical ability to jump and to run and to do those kind of things. So no problem there. You look at the entertainment industry and the music and the culture. Wow, who can sing better than American blacks? Who can dance better than American blacks? So culture, we're okay. Sports, we're okay. But when it comes time to talk about engineering, uh, law, uh, technology, and other, where blacks have made all kinds of contributions, you'll find that they've been eliminated or omitted. And so, uh, you know, part of this is the sort of discovery of what our contributions have been uh, when we talk about technology, when we talk about trade, when we talk about inventions, um, you know, when we talk about mayors, uh, political, uh, so this is uh, really about trying to balance the equation so that we all can live freely uh, as Americans in this country. And what do you see, um, say, in, uh, in another decade happening to black people in the United States in terms of advancing opportunities for employment and other professions? Well, right now we're seeing a, a backlash. We're seeing an effort to turn back the clock, um, partly because of... Uh, uh, you know, black people are making these strides. And so, uh, you know, where are we going to go? Uh, I don't know. But I do know that uh, uh, the struggle will continue. Uh, I grew up uh, with uh, people like Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Jesse Jackson, and others who were fighting the fight. And so the next generation is going to continue that fight. They're going to have to. Um, you know, it's not going to be given to us uh, for uh, reparations, all that kind of thing gets into this too. Uh, so the struggle will continue, and the next generation must stand up, and we now must uh, pass the baton onto that next generation and support them as they continue the struggle. But we're talking about a 100, 200-year right. struggle. All right. Um, thank you so much, Melvin, for your insight. That was Melvin Foote, President and Chief Executive Officer, Constituency for Africa. VOA Africa is your trusted source for news, sports, entertainment, and music. Stay engaged with VOA Africa. We love to hear your voice. You can call us 24-7 on WhatsApp and leave a message. Leave comments. 
requests or greetings, we may play your message on VOA Africa. Dial the international code plus one, then two zero two two five eight three zero seven six. VOA Africa is always happy to hear your voice. The number again is the international code plus one, then two zero two two five eight three zero seven six. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Shogun Chang, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. <laughs>